what this class is called. Um, there's been some confusion about this, and I understand why. We used to call it Foundations, and we called it Foundations because it was based on a passage in Hebrews chapters 5 and 6, where it says, let's not lay again the foundations of, and it lists some rudiments of the faith. So we could call it Foundations. Uh, we could call it Catechism, okay? That word is not a, a Catholic word or it doesn't come from a particular tradition. It comes from Luke chapter 1, verse 4, where uh, Luke tells Theophilus, the person that he's writing to, that I want you to be assured of the things that you have been taught. All right, it's a word for teaching, and it was a word used scripturally for teaching of the faith, of the basics of the faith and the content of the faith. I've taken to calling this class Christian Formation Class. Uh, in Galatians, Paul says that he is in the pains of labor until Christ is formed in the Galatians, right? So one of the goals of the Christian faith is that Christ be formed in us. And so I think that's a fitting name. We could call it discipleship class because in many ways we're covering what uh, Jesus tells the disciples to do. Teach them everything that I've commanded. Teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. Um, Christianity 101, Christianity for Dummies, you get the idea. That's what we're trying to do in this class. So what I'll cover this spring until May, uh, we'll talk about the gospel. We're going to talk about the new sort of skeleton of what our materials will cover, which is the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and uh, the Ten Commandments. And I'll speak a little bit tonight about why we're choosing those. Uh, we'll talk about baptism, we'll talk about communion, we'll talk about uh, worship in general. So we're covering those fundamentals, broadly speaking. And I should also add, I want this to be an opportunity to ask questions. Uh, I would argue that the Christian faith is a question-inviting faith. All right, since the beginning when God uh, commands his people, particularly in Deuteronomy, he, God says several times, or Moses says to Israel, when your children ask these questions, this is what you say. And he says this repeatedly, and I think it's because questions are a fundamental part of the faith. They should be. So what I mean by that is questions from everything, from everything like what do we believe about baptism to how do you tithe in this church? Which if you're new, you realize we don't pass the basket. Where is it? And we can answer those things. So I, the biggest thing is this is a forum for questions, all right? It's a forum for asking questions of all kinds. So I want to encourage that. And again, as a side note, we should love it when our children ask questions about our, the faith, all right? That should be great, even the hardest questions. It's okay to say you don't know, but we should always, I believe, encourage questions of all kinds about the faith. Uh, they're one of the best ways to teach. I mean, when people ask a question, they want to know, right? They're, they're hungry to know. So first, let me start with the gospel. And you could take an hour to present the gospel. You could present the gospel many different ways. How many people ever encountered the Romans road back in the day? There's, there's all kinds of ways the gospel has been presented. I want to just do something a little different and go to John chapter 17. And I'm going to emphasize a few things about the gospel. First, John chapter 17 this whole scene in John from 13 to 18 is Jesus' last, uh, it's what should be the Passover meal, or it's the Passover meal, or that scene, but in it Jesus is speaking his last words to his disciples. And in 17, we get a very remarkable moment. It's remarkable because we're getting a window into what went on before creation. 
Okay, a couple times in this moment where Jesus is praying to the Father, he will say something like, give me the glory that you gave me or that you shared with me before the world was made. So we're getting a window into this eternal conversation that the scriptures tell us uh, is in God. And um, so it's a remarkable moment. I want to start in 17.1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So one of the ways to talk about the gospel is to say that Jesus came to give us life, and as he said, to give us more abundant life. And we can define that life scripturally as eternal life. Eternal life doesn't mean, or it doesn't just mean long life, it means a quality of life, a kind of life. As Jesus says, an abundant life, a life of thriving. What is thriving? How is, what is a thriving life? And that eternal life that Jesus describes is something that is meant to start now and go on forever. We can experience eternal life now, today, tonight, in our lives. That's what Jesus intends. And notice how he defines eternal life. Eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is knowing God. Sometimes the gospel is described as going to heaven when you die, and certainly that might include that, but Jesus is talking about something far bigger than that, right? Again, it's something that can begin now because you can begin to know God now. So eternal life is knowing God. Well, what does that mean? Well, I want to suggest two things from this text. The first is that knowing God means meeting the Trinity. It means meeting Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus will not explicitly in this prayer mention the Holy Spirit. He does in this whole section, but not in chapter 17. But notice what he says. This is eternal life, knowing you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So he says, knowing God means knowing the Father, and knowing the Son whom he sent. And we can add, because it's added in other scriptures, knowing the Holy Spirit whom he sent. So knowing God is knowing or meeting the Trinity. And the New Testament is, among other things, this big revelation that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we'll unpack that more and more as we go. But I want to suggest it's not a mathematical puzzle, it's good news. It's good news that we can be introduced into this divine life. So that's one, it's meeting the Trinity. And the second that I would relate to that is to know God means to be united to Jesus Christ. That's how we come to know Father, Son, and Spirit, is by being united to Jesus Christ through faith. One of the more important word or phrases that occurs repeatedly in the New Testament, and I would encourage you to have a pencil out and mark your Bible whenever you find it, is the phrase, in Christ or in him when it's speaking about Christ. You will find that Paul especially uses this term repeatedly. And for him, everything that comes from the Christian life comes from the Christian's connection to Christ. It's because we're in him that we have access to the Father by the Spirit that we can have this abundant life that comes from their life being spilled over into our lives. So those two things, meeting the Trinity and being unified with Christ. Uh, this is eternal life. And so 
we can stop and consider, well, how do we come to know those things? First and primarily through scripture, right? It's through our study of scripture. It's through, for example, the reading of the gospel of John that we come to know many of the things he's speaking about and come to know God through Christ. Um, and I want to look uh, in verse 13. But now I am coming to you and I speak these things in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. If we don't think of Jesus as one of, as the most joyful person that's ever lived, we miss a big part about Jesus. We know he's a man of sorrows and we know that he died on the cross and we know that he experienced terrible things, but we should also think of him when we think of him and we should think this is the most joyful person that's ever walked the face of the earth. And his desire is to share the joy that he shares with the Father in the Holy Spirit. He wants to share that joy with us. That's what comes of knowing him, is entering into and participating in the joy that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have and share among themselves and always have. Okay, so there is a, just a brief um, outline of the gospel. Eternal life is knowing God, and we can know God through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and he introduces us to his Father and the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a, a phrase, believing, belonging, behaving. I think the Christian faith involves all three, believing, belonging, and behaving. And you don't want to miss any one of these, all right? There's this organic connection between all. Sometimes people can think that the Christian faith is believing the correct facts about God, having the correct facts all lined up in your head about God. Well, that's part of it, but it's a small part, and it is much more three-dimensional than just knowing those facts. And I want you to think for a minute about what it would mean to miss any one of these, miss believing what the scripture outlines about God. But maybe you belong and you behave in a certain way. All right. Or you believe and you belong, but you don't behave in the way that the scriptures lay out. So all three of these matter. They're all connected organically. Um, believing, that just has to do, and we're going to talk a lot about that, and this is what the Apostles' Creed is largely about. What are the most important things about who God is and what he's done? All right. What are the most important things about who God is and what he's done? This is where the word creed comes from, from the Latin word credo, I believe, Greek, pisteo. Um, but faith or believing in this sense is more than just assenting to facts. It's personal confidence in a person. It's entrusting oneself to a person. So the creed, the Apostles' Creed or any other creed is not just a it's not just an egghead saying the right things about God. It's a confession of personal investment and personal trust. So it's not just propositional content that we share. It's believing, belonging. I think the first and most important thing we say about belonging is we belong to Christ. Right? Those that are his people, those that believe in him, belong to him. And he would say he to them. Right? We belong to one another. And as a consequence of belonging to him, we belong to one another, all right? One of the most important things about the Christian faith is that it takes expression in our connection to actual tangible people that we regularly rub elbows with, that we regularly live out life with, that we regularly learn how to love, right? Um, 
So belonging is central, all right? Belonging to a particular concrete people somewhere. Um, belonging to a local body. I guess we could just say it this way. I think all believers, unless they're sick or in prison, should have strong connections to a local body of believers somewhere, right? And that the Christian life is deeply impoverished when that's absent. And then behaving. I don't necessarily like that word, but we're just talking about how we live, our conduct, right? And um, behaving is really about a loving response to what God has done in Christ. All right, we, you might say that this is the works part. This is the good works part. Uh, this is, as it says in Ephesians, that God has good works that he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. All right, I would connect this behaving part with the Ten Commandments, which we're going to spend a good deal of time on. The Ten Commandments are not, sometimes we think of them as these harsh rules uh, that Israel had to do. It wasn't a terrible, but from the beginning, the Ten Commandments were all about grace. God had delivered them by his own power. He had uh, brought them out into the wilderness. He had acted graciously on their behalf, and the Ten Commandments were an invitation to respond to that. So each one of these, believing, pertains in some sense to the creed. Belonging, I would suggest, uh, is closely connected to the Lord's Prayer and behaving. The Ten Commandments is the most concrete and succinct expression of the, the life that God wants to lead his people into by grace. And again, notice what happens when any one of these are missing, believing, belonging, or behaving, right? Uh, let's just say uh, you believe the right things about God. And in some sense, you belong to some community, but you don't, there's no fruit in your life. There's no evidence in your life of the kinds of things that God wants to give you his grace to do. James tells us that, hey, the, belief, the demons believe and tremble, right? The demons are theologically correct, uh, but their lives don't, are not connected to the grace of God. So believing, belonging, and behaving. Um, so I want to talk for a minute about why we're doing the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. Um, first, the Creed, and I'm going to spend a little, I'll spend a little time later expanding a little more deeply on the Apostles' Creed. Um, but again, the Apostles' Creed is a succinct summary of the essentials of the Christian faith. It is a, um, it is a story, a summary of the story of Scripture. And you could say it is a summary of the gospel. All right, if you think about the creed, it starts with God the creator, and it ends with uh, the resurrection of the dead and Jesus' return to judge the living and the dead. It covers the whole of time, the whole of history. The Lord's Prayer. Uh, I want to suggest that the Lord's Prayer is, obviously, it teaches us to pray. Um, it teaches us to worship. But more than that, um, it's our connection to God the Father, right? Jesus says, you can call my Father your Father. He says, you're in me, you're my disciples, I'm bringing you into the Father's presence, and you can call my Father your Father. Jesus is the unique Son of the Father, but we have the privilege of being adopted as sons and addressing Jesus' Father in the same way he addresses the Father, there's a lot going on in the Lord's Prayer, but I would suggest a lot of it has to do with uh, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And then the Ten Commandments. Again, I said it a minute ago, the Ten Commandments are the most succinct statement in the Old Testament of the life that God wants his people to live. In fact, I would suggest that in Exodus and Deuteronomy, those long sections of laws that are in there and they seem in a random order and they seem, some of them, rather strange, all those are is an unpacking of the Ten Commandments. It's an elaboration and an illustration of what living out the Ten Commandments looks in various kinds of life. And as evangelicals and Protestants were used to thinking, oh yeah, no more law, isn't this great? But it's important to note that we are fulfilling the law. So how can we fulfill a law that we are not familiar with, right? We're not under the law, as Paul says, but the Spirit is leading us to fulfill it and we need to understand what he's leading us to fulfill, all right? So another reason we do these is because um, from a very early time, it's pretty clear that this was the foundational material to introducing people to the Christian faith. They would use these three things, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments as a basic outline. And that's another reason we're doing it. Okay, um, just a few more things, and then I want to take a little time walking through the Apostles' Creed in a very cursory way. In the weeks to come, we'll get into a little bit more detail. But I want to talk for a minute about the difference between uh, centrally important things and secondary things. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, I received what I passed on to you, which is of first importance. He uses this expression, first importance, and I'm going to appropriate that term. Matters of first importance. And what he narrates when he says this is of first importance is the life of Jesus, is the life and ministry of Jesus. And so I think the scriptures give us a clue that we can discern between what is of first importance, what is non-negotiable about the Christian faith, and what good Christians can honestly debate about and their scriptural grounding for those debates. And let me give you a couple of examples of what I would consider secondary or maybe even um, tertiary issues. So what's of first importance is who is Jesus? What it means to know God? What eternal life is? What I believe is of secondary importance, which doesn't mean it's of no consequence, but it's not something that we're gonna make a make or break issue, for example, is how you baptize and whom. We immerse and we tend to practice Believer's baptism, which means somebody needs to be of an age that they can understand the faith and profess the, profess the faith. However, uh, we respect a lot of people who believe that you should practice infant baptism. And so we don't mandate that people that come to TCF have to be baptized as an adult if they were baptized as a child. As an illustration of this, uh, Ben Hughes, the pastor of ECF, was baptized as a baby. He's never been baptized as an adult. All right, that illustrates the fact that that's not an issue we're going to break over. All right, who Jesus is, crucial. How you baptize, we have our convictions, but we're not going to make you, um, we're not going to make people who have a strong conviction in that regard do something differently. Schools of theology, Calvinism versus Arminianism, we're not going to make that central to our understanding of what the gospel is. What you believe about Jesus' return Right? When he's going to return and a lot of issues around eschatology. A lot of Christians have fought over those issues. It's not that we don't believe they're unimportant and we have some convictions about them, but they're not, as Paul says, of first importance. Does this make sense? And so for us, 
We want to keep the gospel central. We want to keep knowing God central. We want to keep, as to the best of our ability, those things that scripture seems to indicate are of first importance and make sure that we understand the difference between first importance and secondary importance. Um, and I think that prevents a lot of problems, more than anything, fighting among believers. Let me speak for a minute about um, what I think is, so for some people, the creeds are, hey, we should have no creed but the Bible. I want to speak about why I think creeds are deeply biblical, all right? Um, and I want to start in Deuteronomy. So you should, if you have a Bible, go to Deuteronomy. Chapter 6. So Deuteronomy, Moses is about to die. Israel is getting ready to enter the promised land. He cannot enter. These are his last words to Israel. And he says this in 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is what is called the Shema because the first word of it is Shema, hear, listen. And it became, rightly so I think, something like a creed for Jews. All right, believing Jews to this day pray the Shema morning and night. All right, and it does several things, this passage of scripture. It says who God is, right? Here in Israel, the Lord is one. There's no other God. There are not many gods. It's the Lord alone. It teaches something about how they should respond to that truth. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then it says that they should go on with a life that is in, totally involved with meditating on his words and with learning to put his words into practice. Um, this, has, this, I would say rightly, is a creed in the Old Testament. All right? It functions like that for Jews, and rightly so. It's a, it's a concentrated point in the Old Testament that you can look for an understanding of the Old Testament. Again, you always want to back out to more scripture, but it is a concentrated point uh, that summarizes who, who the, the people of God are in the Old Testament. And as I said, it includes be believing, behaving, and belonging, right? It says this is who God is. It says this is how you should respond. Um, and it says here, O Israel, right? You are the people of God. You belong to God as his people. I would also remind you in the New Testament, if you remember several times, and this account happens in several Gospels, people say, what is the greatest commandment? And if you remember, the first that Jesus says is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's this. The second is like unto it, out of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. So this was a question in Jesus' day. If we were to break down all of the commands of Scripture into the most important how would we do it? Well, part of it is in this answer to the Shema. So that's in the Old Testament. Now I want to look in 1 Corinthians 8 at a really remarkable passage. Because several times, this is, I think, the most remarkable instance of it, but several times Paul takes the Shema and he explains it further. 
So 1 Corinthians 8, 6. What I want to point out here is that in the New Testament, there are little creed-like statements everywhere. Little statements that are meant to be a summary of the most important content of the faith. This is one of them. 8, 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father. So let's just stop there. One God. That phrase is from Deuteronomy, right? Here are Israel. The Lord is one. The Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So he's the creator, all right? This is a brief expansion of the Shema. But then he says this, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not paying attention, I don't know if you notice what Paul has done. Lord, all caps, well, that's not all caps. Lord, typically, is a stand-in in Scripture for the divine name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. It's God's name, all right? The only time he ever says, this is my name by which you can call me. And what Paul is doing here is saying, well, there's one God, the Father, and one Lord. He's taking this name that was applied to God alone and giving it to Jesus, all right? He's applying it to Jesus, through whom we exist. Uh, let's see. Through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So do you see what Jesus has done? He's saying God is one. And God is Father, Son. He doesn't say the Holy Spirit here, but he will in other places. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So can everybody, I want to make sure you understand what he's doing here. He's taking the Shema and saying, let me tell you something about it that you didn't know or we didn't know before. God is one, but he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I would add that most of the time when you're reading Paul, if he says Lord or the Lord, he's speaking of Jesus. All right. And I'll, I'll just illustrate this with another passage. That's another creed like statement. Philippians chapter two. Some people argue that Paul didn't um, write these verses, but he was using what was already a creed like statement. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's definitely a creed-like statement. It's this summary of the content of the faith. So chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow if, uh, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's that word Lord again. And the name that is above every name is given to Jesus, right? Paul is again saying something very similar that he said in, um, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Um, in Isaiah, it says, I will give my glory to no other. Yet here he is giving the glory to Jesus. Well, it's not another, right? This is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've mentioned 1 Corinthians. I would encourage you to go there. It is another case in which it's a narrative of the most important content of the faith. That's where that phrase uh, th that phrase of first importance comes from. Let me just look at two more uh, statements, passages that I think are these creed-like statements. First Timothy 3.16. Uh, this is another one that seems like it's something that already exis existed. Maybe it was a song, maybe it was a creed of some kind that the church confessed. Um, if you have an ESV translation, it'll be set off in uh, 
as, it, as if it's a poem or a song. It says this in 316, uh, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's a brief narration of the career of Jesus, all right? And another example, I think, of a creed-like statement. Uh, the last one I'll look at um, is in 1 John, and there's more. Um, I think they're everywhere, but 1 John is an interesting one. Um, 1 John 4, starting in verse 2. This one's interesting because it speaks of Antichrist. And a lot of people, you know, they want to know, when I was a kid, it was Gorbachev because he had the mark on his head, the, the birthmark. And anyway, people, you know, wondering about who the Antichrist is. By this, you know, the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is, uh, confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Do you want to know the spirit of Antichrist? Anybody that denies the essential content about Jesus, and he's, he's very succinct that he came in the flesh. Now, one of the things you find if you study church history is that most of the opponents of Christianity sort of within a believing, a God-believing world attacked some aspect of the, the essential statements about Jesus, that he only seemed to be human, but he really didn't take on flesh. Uh, that when Jesus died, Jesus was a man and, and the spirit inhabited him. And when Jesus died, the, the spirit from God departed him. There's all kinds of ways they tweak it, but essentially they don't like the essentials of what the Christian message is as laid out in a lot of these New Testament passage, passages. Um, all right, so creeds, I think, are very biblical. They're attempts at stating the most important uh, elements of the Christian faith or summarizing the Christian faith or summarizing the Bible. Now, if we just zoom out, um, another reason I think they're essential. One of the things you should note about the Apostles' Creed is it goes in threes. It starts with the Father, spends a lot of time on the Son, a little time on the Holy Spirit. Uh, that order is biblical. All right, it's, it's biblical in a macro way. The, the Old Testament speaks of God. We know a lot about God from what we learn in the Old Testament. In the Gospels, we learn about Jesus. And in the book of Acts, we could say, uh, we learn about the Holy Spirit. All right, does that make sense? That this, that order that the creed is in is a biblical order in a broad way. It's also, um, it's also biblical in a micro way. So when Jesus tells the disciples, to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see that order. In the opening chapter of Ephesians, there's this grand, something like nine verse, uh, sort of doxology in the beginning of Ephesians where Paul is just, he's just excitedly celebrating all the things that God has done. He speaks of what the Father has done. He speaks of what the Son has done. And he speaks of what the Holy Spirit has done, sort of in that order. So it's, uh, there's, a, there's a continuity there with the structure of the Bible. Um, so again, the Apostles' Creed um, was meant to be a summary of the Bible, just a quick summary of the large contents of the Bible. By the way, I think the shortest shrift is given to the Old Testament. Because, but, but the revolutionary thing for most people was Jesus, right? The sending of Jesus in history. 
So it's a summary of the Bible. It's a summary of the gospel. And it's a summary of the essential contents of the Christian faith. And by the way, as a summary of the gospel, one of the great things about the creed is it doesn't we know that we're called the behaving part, that there's things that the, the gospel will call us to, but it just declares what God has done. It doesn't declare what we do, right? To speak to the sermon last Friday, it's not something we do for God. It's what God has done in faithfulness, in creation, and in redemption. The last thing I'll say about this is that um, if you're ever interested in studying how the canon of Scripture got formed how the particular books that made it in the Bible were settled upon. It was a long, centuries-long process. But the main thing I would like to point out here is the Creed, the Apostles' Creed, emerges at the same time discussions of the canon of Scripture are emerging. In other words, Christians are thinking, okay, we need to be clear on what's, what um, books of the Bible are most important, and we need to be clear about the essentials of what the Bible is saying, right? Um, so there's this sort of symbiotic relationship between the emergence of the Apostles' Creed and um, the emergence of the canon of Scripture. Okay, um, the last thing I'll say is that I, you know, the Creed should be something exciting to us because it's this, it's like the Shema, it's this, we can declare together joyfully in faith who God is and what he's done and what we have committed our lives to, Right? Um, it's not something, um, again, it's not a dry academic study. It's a celebration, all right? Um, in the early church, in the years subsequent to the New Testament, new believers were told to memorize the Apostles' Creed. And when they came to baptism, they recited the Apostles' Creed and they were baptized. Um, all right, the last thing I'll do, and then we'll take a break, and uh, what I want to do just very briefly is go through sort of the 12 articles of the creed and just make some broad cursory comments, but the big thing I want to do is just note how it details the story of the gospel, right, the good news, the story of scripture. Um, a great exercise is using the flow of the Bible and the story that the Bible tells, what is the gospel? it's a good exercise just to sit down and say it really long. Think about like all the details and then how you would say it succinctly. So let me just go through the various elements and make some broad comments. Um, so I believe in God, the father almighty creator of heaven and earth. It starts us in Genesis. Notice that it starts with, I believe, right? Uh, it's not, you better believe these facts. It's, this is what I have committed my life to. And again, I don't think I, or maybe I did mention this, I believe is related to the Greek word for faith um, all through the New Testament, all right? Um, is, this is just a translation of this. I have faith that, all right, God, the Father, there is this God, the Father Almighty, um, that he created the heavens and the earth, that he likes the world and wants to redeem it, that the world is essentially good, that God does not intend to do away with the world. He intends to redeem the world. That there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Notice that it says father. I think what's important here to note is he's the father of Jesus. Something I'll, I'll try to say again and again is this order is so important. Before time, God was father. Before the world began, God was father. And Jesus was the son. All right, or as 
Uh, it's often been put, there never was a time when God was not father. All right. And so the first son, the unique son, as the scripture says, the only begotten son is Jesus. And anyone else who becomes a son of God becomes a son of God in him as a gift, but not as their natural right. Sometimes people say, oh, we're all children of God. Actually, we're not all children of God. We're all creatures of God. But through faith in Jesus, we can become children of God. So he, the father of Jesus has made the world and he wants to redeem it. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Now, this is the longest section of the creed. That word only son, let me very briefly say, means, as I just said a minute ago, that he is the unique son of God in a way that none of us are and ever, or, nor ever will be. All right? He is the son of God, as another creed says, begotten of the father before all time. Um, and I can, we can dig down on that more if anybody wants to. Our Lord. All right. This is, again, important. It's a confession of Jesus' mastery over our lives. Uh, and I think that word our is important. So every word here you could spend a little bit of time on. But our Lord. Uh, all who are in Christ, he is our Lord. Jesus tells us to pray our Father, not, notice, my Father. All right, we're not individuals in relationship with God. We're called to personal faith in God, but we're a people called to God. Um, verse, or the, the, the third clause, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This speaks of the incarnation. Um, it speaks of Jesus assuming our flesh, what we celebrate at Christmas. There's a great line that a lot of the early church fathers said in various ways, but it goes something like this. God became man so that man could become God. Now, be careful. He's not saying we're going to become God, but you could translate it this way. God became man so that we could become divine. God meant us to share his divine life and sin has separated us from God. So God, Jesus, became human so that we could share in the divine life. Just as the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters of creation, the Holy Spirit hovered over Mary to bring about the incarnation. And I'll note here that Mary is one of the two humans mentioned in the creed, and this is significant, and I'll point out the significance of this in a minute. One significance of it is our faith is rooted in history. That as Paul said, if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, we're of all men most to be pitied. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. We'll have a lot to say about suffering. We've shared some of it in the, the sermons out of Romans 8. Uh, but suffering is essential to Jesus' mission. And therefore, it's essential to the mission of his people. Um, but it mentions here the other human, Pontius Pilate. And so we have these two humans. We have Pontius Pilate who said, what is truth? And we have Mary who said, be it unto me as you have said. And these in the creed represent the two, the two responses to the gospel that are possible. The response of Mary who says, be it unto me as you have said. And the response of Pilate, which is cynical and at a distance and ultimately crucifies Jesus. He is crucified, died and buried. He descended into hell. So this is one that makes some people scratch their heads. Um, and we can spend a little more time on this at some point. Let me just say right now that there's two probable ways to take this. One is that it means he descended into death. That death is common to all people. And in order to redeem us, 
he entered fully into death. The other is that he entered into Sheol. You remember the parable that Jesus tells about Lazarus and the rich man? That, that, that both are in this place of the departed, uh, but Abraham is in a place of the blessed. That he went there to get Abraham and other believers from the Old Testament. But the, the broad point is that he fully experienced the human condition from birth to puberty to suffering of all kinds to death. And he was raised again on the third day. Resurrection of the dead, we'll spend time on this as well, but what Christians believe is not a disembodied heaven when we die, but the goal of all history is resurrected bodies like Jesus' resurrected body and a renewed earth and a new heaven. All right, the goal of history um, is the resurrection of the body, not a disembodied state, not escape from the body, but the fulfillment of the body. I like to say that in scripture, there are three affirmations of the body. It's creation in the first place, that Jesus took a body, and that God raised that body from the dead. And that's what God would like to do with every person that believes. Jesus is, as it says, the first fruits from among the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Uh, there's a lot of ways that we could talk about this, but Adam and Eve were meant to ascend into God's presence. They were meant to slowly grow in trust in God and to share his reign over creation. And because they sinned, they were, they were cast out of the garden. For the first time, the human race is back in God's presence at the place that God intended at his right hand, in Jesus. And there's so many things. This is Adam back in the garden back at God's right hand over creation. This is all the sacrifices of the Old Testament completed, entering into God's presence. This is Jesus seated, reigning over the universe now and interceding for us now. All right, he is our anchor within the veil, our access. Um, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. The early church, as you know, prayed often, Maranatha, come Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Their desire was that he would come and set all things right. And we have done amazing things in history and we're comfortable with the world as it is. But there's a deep cry in all of history that it's not right and God needs to set things right. And one of our recent presidents said repeatedly, well, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? Well, the wrong side of history is the wrong side of Jesus. It's not the wrong side of a prevailing uh, idea that's out there in the world. One of the things that I would encourage you to do is study how the gospel is preached in Acts. If you go and look in Acts, every time the gospel is preached, one of the consistent things that is presented is that he, Jesus is judge. That he's coming to judge the living and the dead. He will judge everyone. I believe in the Holy Spirit. This is also sort of a shortened, uh, a shortened, he doesn't say much about the Holy Spirit, except he's already said that we can, that he was hinted at being there at creation, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, and that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon Jesus' ascension. Nine, the Holy Catholic Church, uh, the communion of saints. So there's two adjectives there. Holy, we don't have a problem with. The Holy Church, the church that by the grace of God is becoming more like Jesus. Right? They are set apart to become more like Jesus. Uh, we are reserved for him in becoming like God. 
Uh, this touches on the way that grace is transforming the people of God. Catholic doesn't mean Roman Catholic here. All right? It's a word uh, that means universal. All right? And the simplest way of putting it is this word means all Christians everywhere, all those who are in Christ, who have faith in him. And that last phrase, communion of saints, means something similar. Catholic means universal. Communion of saints means that if you are in Christ, you are connected to every other person who is in Christ. Whether that's Paul, who's dead and with Christ, or Kelly, who's sitting here, or the person in church that really irritates you. There is this communion that God has created in Jesus. And... Uh, one of the realities of our faith is that we are all united in him and called to try to live out that union. Paul says that we're to guard the unity of the faith, all right, the bonds of peace that God has created. The forgiveness of sins. Again, this points to the way we've gone wrong and points to one of our greatest needs, that because we've gone wrong, we've been driven from God's presence. But if we can be forgiven, we can get back into God's presence. We can be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection of the body, I've mentioned. Um, and finally, life everlasting, which is where we began. Eternal life, all right? Not exclusively length of time, but quality of life. This is one of the hardest things for us to grasp because in our life, generally speaking, things get worse and worse, right? You know, the older you get, the, old, the your body goes downhill. You can, food isn't as good as it used to be. Things just get worse and worse. There's very few things, if any, in our experience that get better with time. But one of the things about eternal life is that it gets better with time. Um, it, it improves over time. That's outside of our experience, but it is the promise of the gospel. And back to where we started, we get it by knowing him. All right, knowledge of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, I've zoomed through a lot. Let's take a seven or so, seven to 10 minute break. Please discuss with some people near you um, anything that you want to discuss out of what we've shared and come back with some questions to, uh, to share. Can we do that? I'll call us back in about seven to 10 minutes.